Good morning, friends. Thank you so much for the encouragement you have already given to me by the songs that you've sung, by the way you've engaged with our time together so far. And now it is my great honor and privilege to spend the next 35 minutes or so walking you through part of what God has said to us in his word. Perhaps you noticed this morning already that uh, as, as the main structure for our time, bit by bit, our friends have been reading us through portions of a book from the Bible called the Gospel of John. Gospel just means good news. These stories have been good news that a man named John wanted to send to us. Good news recorded within just a few decades of the events themselves by a man who was there for all of it. And by a man who came to believe that, the, that, that what he had seen, what he had experienced in his own time, was the key to life for anyone who would ever believe on this Jesus from that point forward and until today. In fact, there's a a crucial passage just beyond what our friends read for us earlier this morning where John summarizes everything he hoped to accomplish by taking the time and the trouble to write down these stories that he recorded in his gospel. Here's how he summarizes what he meant to do by writing this for us. This is from John chapter 20, verse 30. John writes, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that I chose, I chose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written, John says, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote what he wrote because anyone from anywhere can have life through believing in Jesus. And he wrote all this because he knew that it wouldn't actually be easy for us to believe. He knew that we would need the help. Perhaps if you're here this morning and not familiar with Christianity, you might think that belief comes easy for Christians. You might think that, that being a Christian is a lot like being a Tennessean or an Alabamian, something you're, you're born into, something that, that comes with your mother's milk, something that you've never really questioned or wondered about. But friends, that just isn't the case. Some of us, even those of us who have been Christians for a long time, still struggle to believe that it's all true. Some of us struggle to believe because we want something more. We want, we want evidence we haven't seen yet. It seems like there's, that, that evidence is just always what, what we crave, what we need to feel secure is always just outside of our reach, and we're always reaching more for it. Others of us have never really wondered about the evidence or wondered whether it's all true, but faced with the pressures of life or with the pain of loss or with uncertainty about what's ahead, we doubt all of it in our hearts even if we'd never admit to it with our mouths or even think about it with our brains. It's one thing to, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a, to a, to a theme park that has one of those free fall rides, but it, it, I have, I enjoy them. But it's one thing to stand and look at that free fall, you know, at the, at, the, at the pole going way up, a couple hundred feet in the air, and watch that ride lift it up and fall. And to know that based on the signs on the wall, people with expertise have tested all that equipment, those straps are strong enough to hold the weight of the people who will be behind them. That 
that machinery is firmly attached to the, to the, to the pole and the, and the equipment that lifts it. You can see all it's certified. You can even watch it in action and watch people not dying as they fall down. It's one thing to, like, it, through your brain, like, process that that thing's trustworthy. I can get on that. But another thing to be up there, lifted 200 feet up, to feel your, te- your seat uh, tilted forward, to feel your weight fall on those straps, and to wait for the moment when the lever gives and you fall to what looks like certain death. You'd be crazy not to doubt in that moment, at least in your gut, at least with that rush of adrenaline, at least in your heart, you'd wonder if it's all true. Christians need help to believe, even those of us who have been Christians for a long time. And John knew that we would. And that's why he wrote these stories about Jesus. And at the crest of a swelling wave, after story, after story, after story, for 20 chapters laid out in front of us, at the crest of that swelling wave, he gives us Jesus Resurrected from the dead. Because John knew that what we need most to believe, the key to overcoming doubt, would be meeting a resurrected Jesus. One who was really dead in a real body, but who came to life again in that body and lives today in a body as real as mine or yours. John knew we would need to meet the resurrected Jesus to overcome our doubts. And I want to do, what I want to do with the next bit of time we have this morning is show you two stories from John chapter 20 where doubters meet the risen Jesus and see their doubt transformed. And my prayer for you and for me as we consider what they went through is that we can have our doubt overcome through this same Jesus, that we will meet him today. I want to begin by reading the first of the two stories that we're going to consider together this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read from John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. This, friends, is the word of the Lord to us. John writes, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Point one for us this morning, the resurrected Jesus turns fear to gladness. The resurrected Jesus turns fear to gladness. We're picking up the story here where the readings from earlier in our time this morning left off on the evening of the day that Jesus rose again. Jesus' closest followers are hunkered down. John tells us, that the doors are locked, verse 19, and that that's not just a precaution, it's not just a cultural custom, it's not just an old habit or a generally good thing to do. John tells us exactly why the doors are locked. These men are afraid for their lives. They were afraid of the Jews who had wanted Jesus dead. And these guys had good reason to fear, no question, because what they had just seen, what they had just watched happen, well, they're... Their best and most tangible evidence that God was with them, 
that God was watching out for them had just been brutally murdered right in front of them. Of course they're afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid? It, that, that John tells us this is what they're, that this is what they're experiencing is just another example in a long list of examples from his gospel where he wonderfully humanizes the earliest followers of Jesus. In a way, it's easy to, to, to treat them like heroes because in a way, for those of us who follow Jesus, they, they were. They were forerunners for our discipleship as, as Christians. But in another way, they, they were not supermen. They were entirely human, and they respond just like we do. Fear is, is a basic human emotion. I don't know of one more basic to us as humans. And it comes to all of us because all of us have things that we hope for, things that we love, but all of us are limited. We're limited in what we know. We're limited in what we can see about the future. We're limited in how much we can influence our futures or control what, we, what, what most affects us. Fear comes from that gap between what we want for ourselves and what we're able to provide for ourselves, between what we love and want to protect and the power we actually have to protect it. Fear comes to all of us. And fear is a form of doubt about what the Bible says about God. The Bible tells us that God is good in all his ways and plans. The Bible tells us that God loves us. The Bible says that he's paying attention, relentlessly paying attention to the details of our lives. The Bible tells us that our pain registers with him, that our sorrows weigh on him, that our tears are recorded in his book, as the psalmist puts it. The Bible tells us that we're not on our own in what we're facing. We're not at the mercy of circumstances outside of our control. But when we are afraid, we doubt all of that. And it's doubt like this, doubt that so many of us can relate to, that we get the backdrop for the first encounter with the risen Jesus that we'll consider. It's into the midst of the disciples' well-founded fears, fears just like yours and mine, that the risen Christ comes and makes his mark. His words are simple, but they carry, they carry all that is needed for hope. Jesus simply says, peace be with you. These are the very words they needed most. And they're far more than words. Jesus then shows them what has now been at the center of Christian hope ever since. He shows them the scars in his hands, scars they saw him receive with their own eyes. He shows them the side that was pierced by a spear as he hung on a cross. They saw that happen. Now they realize it's the same body. This is no ghost. He's, he's the real, wounded, once dead, now living, physical body that they had always known. And it is in seeing him in seeing the one they had trusted for life, seeing that he's not dead anymore. It's in seeing him and believing that John says their fear is transformed into gladness. Then the disciples were glad, he says, when they saw the Lord. Now, friends, before you jump to say, of course they were glad, they just seen Jesus. And let me remind you about something. This is so, good, so crucial to know for you to get the encouragement and the help with doubt that, that you need this morning. Yeah, they just seen Jesus. That was a unique gift all of us would love to receive. But in another way, everything that had made them afraid 
was still true. They were still marked men. They were still wanted dead by the powers that be, by the same Jewish leaders who had just crucified Jesus, by the same Roman Empire that had stood behind it. This was an empire that they could run for all their days and never escape. That's all still true. There was no running from these threats for them. And in fact, in fact, the truth is that before many more years, most of the men in this room would be killed because they were with Jesus. So considering what they're facing and zoomed out to our perspective and knowing that, knowing what actually happened to them, these men still have so many good reasons to be afraid, and yet they're glad. Do you see what made the difference? The resurrection of Jesus made the difference for them. See, here's the thing, friends. Here's what you need this morning. To battle the fear that you live with for whatever it is that you're facing. It's through the resurrection of Jesus that we have a preview of our future. Fear, fear always is bound up with a range of possible futures that we want to avoid, isn't it? It's always there with fear. Some possible future we're looking ahead to and hoping to avoid. Maybe things we don't want to experience or things we don't want to lose or things that we don't want to miss out on that we think we might. Fear is always future-oriented. For them, for these disciples, they were reasonably afraid that some point in the future they might get what Jesus just got. They didn't want to be captured. They didn't want to be tortured. They didn't want to be crucified. And in a way, nothing at all has changed the likelihood of a future just like that for them. But now, now they've seen the risen Jesus. Now they've recognized that this body right in front of them was a living body as real as theirs. Now they know, well, now getting what Jesus got has a whole different set of connotations for them. They might get the cross, but they'll get the resurrection too. Friends, on the backside of death, death by crucifixion, death by execution, death by cancer or COVID or old age, on the backside of all the little deaths we might experience along the way, the deaths of our hopes and our dreams, of our relationships, of our careers, of whatever else, on the backside of death comes resurrection because Jesus' story isn't just his it's the story of all those who trust in him, too. Isn't it true that stories help to orient us in the world? They help us to know what to expect next. I mean, there, to me, the best example of this is, is, is many great kids' books written precisely to help children feel like they've been there before and know what's coming next. Uh, we got a couple of these that we love and read on repeat in our house. There's one called Curious George Goes to the Hospital. Maybe you guys have read that one about the troublesome, sneaky little monkey who swallows a puzzle piece that must not have been biodegradable because he has to go to the hospital to have it surgically removed. We got another one called We Don't Eat Our Classmates featuring Penelope Rex, a sweet and shy, well-meaning T-Rex who's just starting kindergarten and can't help sampling a tasty little classmate seated all around her, especially at lunch when they spill sauce all over themselves. 
She doesn't actually eat them. She just sort of, I guess, just has them in her mouth until one of her classmates tattles on her, tells the teacher, Penelope ate William again, and she's forced to spit him back out. The point of these books, besides the fact that they're wonderful and funny and creative and definitely worth reading and rereading as great stories, the point of these books is to be helpful to kids. They're meant to walk kids through what it's like to go to a hospital where most of them have never been. To know what it's like to be put into the bed and put into the little robe and to be prepared for surgery and what will be happening while they're put under. It's what it's like to get an x-ray and what it's like to recover. Meant to help kids know what it's like to go to school for the first time when they've never been and what it'll be like to sit in the lunchroom and, and, and wait for your food and what a desk looks like and what kind of assignments you might get. It helps us know that because someone else went through it, we can get through it too. Stories help to orient us. And friends, this is what you need to know about Christianity this morning, especially if this is unfamiliar terrain for you. When Christians look to Jesus Christ, they look to him not just as a teacher or a moral example to follow. Jesus is very different to us as Christians than Buddha is to a Buddhist or than Muhammad is to a Muslim. We see Jesus as as a savior, that, that what he went through in his life was not just a series of experiences that happened to him along the way, but a set of work he set out to accomplish and did for us. When he died, he died on purpose for us. When he rose again, he rose by defeating death for us. That Jesus, when he lived and died and rose again, overcame our great enemy that we had no hope to overcome on our own. And that makes Jesus not just a savior, but a kind of champion and forerunner. Or to use the Apostle Paul's language for Jesus in his resurrection, Jesus is a kind of first fruits. The first fruits is an image from the harvest. After, after you've put the, the time and effort into planting, and you've watered, and you've watched the weather, and you've done everything you can to secure this harvest, you still, as an agrarian person, are going to live in fear that maybe something's going inter- to interrupt this before the harvest comes. You live in fear, and you watch, and you watch, and you wait, and, and then you see it. The first stalks that begin to come up out of the ground, the first good yield, it's not just a good, tasty bit of grain. It's a sign of what's still to come. That there will be more where this came from. That you can rest now because the process is underway. It's organic. It's unstoppable. It's coming. And Paul says, look to Jesus and you know what you have. Here is your first fruits. Because he has risen, there is a harvest coming. And all those who look to him will not die, but will live. Jesus' story turns fear to gladness because when we look to him, we see our future. And because Jesus is alive again, whatever I may have to go through in my life, however difficult it may be, however painful, it's going to be okay. Because my God has already begun making all things new. Jesus' living body is the proof, and he won't forget about me. That is the hope of the Christian. This is how the resurrected Jesus turns fear to gladness. But there is more. Maybe at this point, this is sounding pretty good, but you're not sure how you could ever believe it. If that's what you're feeling now, you're in good company. I feel that way. I've often felt that way. How can you know that the story of Jesus' resurrection isn't just like the story of Curious George goes to the hospital? 
something concocted with the best of intentions to help fearful people cope with the fear of death and keep it from ruining their lives in the meantime. If that's what you're wondering about, if your doubt like mine is more often look like skepticism than like fear, then Easter is for you too. And the next story in John 20 will show us how. How the resurrection of Jesus turns skepticism to worship. This is point number two. The resurrection of Jesus turns fear into gladness. And the resurrection of Jesus turns skepticism into worship. Let me walk you through this story, and then I want us to think together about how it can help us. I'm going to pick up reading again in verse 24 of chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, please follow along with me while I do this. This is uh, verse 24. John writes, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. John's focus turns here to a disciple named Thomas who chose a really, really bad weekend to be away. He wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. And ever since then, he's gotten a really bad rap. More than he deserves. In fact, he's even been known amongst Christians since this as Doubting Thomas. And I think that's really unfair. He was actually a good guy. I mean, he was definitely as committed as as any of the other ones, maybe more so. He was just a sober and not so optimistic member of this band of happy followers of Jesus. In fact, you might call Thomas a bit of an Eeyore. He was the one who a few chapters earlier, had told Jesus when they, when they had a crowd of 5,000 hungry people around them and, and, and no way to feed them, he was the one who would come to Jesus with a boy that he'd found who had just a couple pieces of fish and pieces of bread and said to Jesus, well, here we have this kid's snack, but what are those for so many? Just a couple chapters after that, Thomas was the one who who when Jesus was called to go to Lazarus, one of his friends who had died very near to Jerusalem, knowing that there were people who wanted him dead, that they would be probably hearing that he was nearby and come make a move against him. It was Thomas who said, you know, we may as well go and die with him. Still went, but he was a realist. He wasn't a naysayer. He just saw things as they were. And his response to what the disciples tell him is the realistic response when you know from all your experience that dead bodies don't come back to life again. He doesn't believe it. And he, he won't, he says, without more empirical evidence. Unless, he says, I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Can you see yourself in this man? Uh, if you've dealt with doubt about the truth of Christianity, I bet you can. This need for something more. This craving to see something you still can't see. And, and surely you can also see in this man the kind of frustrating experience it is to be around a whole bunch of other people who get it and feel like you're the one who's missing out. They've experienced something clearly I can't relate to. What am I supposed to do with that? 
If you can see yourself in Thomas, and I hope you can, I want you to now see how Jesus meets him in his doubt. Let me, let me pick up in verse 26. John writes, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, just over a week after the appearance we've just considered, Jesus appears to his friends again. He speaks to Thomas despite his doubt with the same love and the same gentleness that he had shown to his friends a week earlier. He gives Thomas the same message, peace be with you in your doubt, Thomas. And he gives Thomas the exact evidence that Thomas asked for. Here, put your finger in my hand. I knew you wanted that. I knew you needed that. Here, put your hand in my side. You're welcome to. And Thomas' response to meeting the risen Jesus is to throw caution to the wind and go all in. My Lord and my God, he's worshiping him. He's just named as God a man that he actually knew. One of his friends. Who would do that? It's unthinkable. Except that he met a dead man come back to life. His skepticism has turned to worship. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus can do that for you too. This story is told by John with all its humanity, with all its believable and relatable details, precisely so that this will happen to you. But I realize it may sound too good to be true so far. I, I, I realize that it may just seem thoroughly unimaginable for you to have a faith like this one, to worship someone as Lord and God, knowing what you know, not knowing what you don't know. It may even seem a little off-putting to be told that the resurrection of Jesus can, can get you beyond the line of skepticism and into worship because you don't get what Thomas got. I mean, you may feel like, oh, of course, if, if, if Jesus just walked through that wall right there and he's standing right here in front of me, I'll fall down and worship him. I'll say, my Lord and my God, I'd believe if he let me touch the scars with my own hands. Call me when he shows up and then we'll talk about faith. And if that's how you're feeling about this story, if that's what you feel about the prospect of faith in, in Jesus, uh, faith that he's really come back to life, much less that he could give you life like his, then I want to encourage you. I'm gonna, I want to finish this morning with a few minutes of encouragement to you to consider three things. Three things about what we've seen already in this story. Three things that might help you cross the line from skepticism into worship. The first thing I want you to know is that your doubt is not a problem for Christianity. It is anticipated and accounted for. It's expected. It's directly addressed in passages like this one. Uh, in other words, friends, what I want, you to, what I want to encourage you is, is not to assume that asking questions about whether it's all true or demanding evidence that it is all true uh, means that you're outside of some sort of matrix that Christians are trapped inside. 
You know, that, that you're out seeing it as it is, seeing something that they're missing. It, it can be tempting to see it that way, but the Bible won't let us. It assumes that hard questions and reasonable evidence for the truth of these claims, that, that's a pathway into Christian faith, not a barrier to it. I mean, just look at Thomas. Think about this story. Sometimes we assume that people in the ancient world were more prone to believe in crazy things than we are. We think of them as people who just had a simple view of the universe because they did in a way that they had very little knowledge about how the world works because in a way they, that's true. But in another way, it's not true. They knew better. Look at Thomas's response. He knew that dead bodies don't come back to life. He knew that sounds crazy, and that's why he wasn't buying it. And the first readers of this story would have connected with him. That would have been their response. So if you're examining Christianity today, I want you to know that, that we know better too. Those of us who are Christians and have been Christians for a long time, we know that dead bodies aren't supposed to come back to life. It's a crazy thing to believe unless it really did happen. And we Christians believe that it did against all odds and unlike anything else that's ever happened, which brings me to the second thing that I want you to know as you consider crossing the line from skepticism into worship. First, your doubt is no problem for Christianity. It's a built-in expectation. It's accounted for. The second thing I want you to know, though, is that there is substantial, reasonable evidence that Jesus really did come back to life after his death. Of course, all of us would love to have the same evidence that Thomas got. Who wouldn't? But Thomas and the other apostles who did see Jesus in that room that, that day, they got the evidence that they got so that we can have the evidence that's available to us. It's a different kind of evidence than touching the scars, than seeing him with our own eyes. But it's still substantial and trustworthy evidence. We have the evidence of eyewitness testimony. Jesus gave Thomas the gift that he gave to Thomas so that Thomas could give us the gift that we're able to receive through books like this one, the Gospel of John. Jesus, in other words, had you and me in mind in verse 29 when he said, blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. Will you track with me as I press this a little bit further? Friends, I know that, I know that not all eyewitness testimony is believable. It's just because somebody says they see something doesn't mean they actually did. And you're not wrong to, to wonder and to push a little bit. Why should I trust this eyewitness account? We all know that there are some eyewitness accounts that are just isolated and self-serving. That explains why someone would claim to have seen what they did. For example... This week, my mother sent me a column from the local paper in the, in the village where I grew up in southwest Alabama, which is very close to what's known as the Bigfoot capital of Alabama, in case you're ever looking for a tourist destination down in my neck of the woods. This column from the local paper reported that a man named Skeeter McGillicuddy had seen him in his yard. It's almost like his mother expected such a sighting when she decided to name him Skeeter McGillicuddy. If anyone has ever had a name for a Bigfoot sighting, it's Skeeter. But you know what? You know who else saw what Skeeter saw? No, nobody. And unfortunately, the video that he took was confiscated when the police arrived. Took his phone, so he didn't actually have a chance to post it on social media, according to Skeeter. And you know, you know why a guy like Skeeter might want to might want to give an isolated account that no one else can corroborate about seeing Bigfoot in his own backyard because now Skeeter McGillicuddy has his name in the paper. 
He's been talked about in a church in Nashville, hundreds of miles away. Skeeter McGillicuddy had, had good reasons to want to, to want to see Bigfoot. It worked out perfectly. But, but, but these early stories about Jesus, they're not like that at all, friends. For one thing, there were hundreds of people who claimed to have seen him. They had names. They were still alive when these accounts were written. So you could have gone and checked with them. Oh, I know who that is. I'll go see. Did he really see it? Paul lists them off in one of his letters. He, he lists the names of people, and then he finally gets to the end of the list, and he's like, look, there's like 500 others that saw him all at once. Go talk to them. He, it's, it's really true. It's not isolated. They all saw him together. And these guys had no self-serving reasons to claim to have seen a dead man come back to life again. I've mean, already mentioned this earlier. This was incriminating evidence against them. This was not some way, to, some platform to new power. They got killed for saying stuff like this. Who would do that? This was not the kind of claim anyone expected to be true. It's not the kind of reality anyone was looking for. It got Paul laughed out of Greece. It got these guys killed. And the only reason that a group this large of eyewitnesses would all stand behind the same accounts knowing that it could get them killed is if they really saw what they said they saw. Jesus gave his blessing on those who don't see and yet believe. That can be you, based on reasonable, well-supported evidence of what others have seen. And this is the final thing I want to leave you with. Your doubt is no problem. And in there is substantial and reasonable evidence that Jesus came back to life to meet you in your doubt if you'd like to consider it. And the final thing I want you to know, facing this story and considering whether you can cross that line from skepticism into worship, is that genuine faith looks like worship, not like intellectual certainty. My Lord and my God, that's what it would look like for you to cross the line. I think what we... What we often crave, those of us especially who are wired up towards skepticism, what we often crave is some sort of reproducible evidence like you might get in a laboratory. You want to be able to set it all up and run it and see it go the same way over and over and over. That's how I'll know that it's trustworthy. We want to test the claims of, of, of someone like, like John and the way that the vaccine got tested over and over and over again on the way to being deployed. And that kind of laboratory confidence we can't possibly get. That level of certainty, if you want to call it that, just doesn't work about anything that we know from history or any sort of relationship. I don't have that kind of certainty that my wife isn't a Russian spy planted in my life as a 12-year-old to watch out for me and make sure that the right information is getting passed back to the Kremlin. I, I don't have certainty that I can look for in any sort of lab anywhere that that's not who she really is. But there's no, that's not the standard of evidence, is it? Certainty is just not something you should look for when you're evaluating claims like this. No, no, what it would look like for you to believe, even if you're not certain, is for you to decide to worship that you've seen enough to put your whole life and all your hope on Jesus. Thomas's stunning claim can be yours. My Lord and my God the fact that this dead man came back to life made all the difference. Friends, this is a great comfort to me. I hope it is to you too. 
If you, like me, have been troubled by doubt about whether it's all true. And what I want you to know right now is that that doesn't mean your faith isn't real. It doesn't mean your faith doesn't count. God has not asked you to wait for certainty or to earn your faith by some sort of feat of intellectual strength. You are not invited into that game. You are invited to trust and obey, just like Thomas did. To look on Christ as you've seen him this morning in John's gospel and respond in exactly the way Thomas did. My Lord and my God, you, can, you right now today can choose to aim your life at what he's called you to and to trust your life to what he's promised to you. You can worship him with the faith you've already got, and it counts. Someone has compared faith to the, to the hold that you've got on a branch if you're falling off of a cliff. Because facing death, friends, as each one of you really is, that is what you're facing. You grab onto that branch and to nothing else. And what matters in that moment of truth What matters even more than the strength of your hold on that branch is the strength of that branch. Will it hold you? A weak hold on a strong branch can save your life. So hold on to the resurrected Christ and he will not let you fall. Easter, friends, is for doubters. Because it reminds us that the same scarred body that Thomas saw and touched is living still. Even right now, in this moment, he's alive, as real as it was then. And the same gentle love that drove Jesus to Thomas in his doubts will one day draw Jesus to me. And he will show me his hands. He will bear his side for me. He will meet me with a physical embrace. And yeah, for now, I don't see what Thomas did, not yet. I want to. I want to so badly. But the Bible is realistic about that challenge and what it means for us for now. Sometimes it can feel like such a burden to need faith, to have these nagging questions that won't go away, to have the ebbing and flowing of suspicion. That can feel like such a burden, this craving to see And Easter reminds us that one day we will. Here's how Paul puts it. For now, 1 Corinthians 13, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Father, we pray that you would give us this faith to see Jesus and to believe. We pray that you would overcome our doubts and replace them with gladness and worship this day. And that through this faith, you would get the glory that's yours by right. We pray this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.